Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Laura Hariluck, MD, FRCPC, about the critical care infrastructure in Nepal, what's happening there now with the recent disaster, and how the critical care community can help. Dr. Harry Luck works as a critical care physician at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Thank you for talking with us today, Laura. Thank you for inviting me. How did you first get involved with critical care medicine in Nepal? We were fortunate enough to have an absolutely outstanding international critical care fellow join us at the University of Toronto about three years ago now. And his vision for the future, his dream, if you'd like to call it that, was to create a critical care fellowship program in Nepal. There are ICUs in Nepal and, you know, people did practice in Nepal and they went away to India, to the UK, to the United States, to Canada to get extra training and the skills that they need to look after people with life-threatening illnesses. But many of them who left never returned to the country. And his vision was to create a program in Nepal for Nepali physicians and to persuade people to stay and to help them help the people of Nepal. And he asked us for help. So I became one of the co-directors of the very first ICU Doctorate of Medicine program at the Institute of Medicine at Chibuvan Teaching Hospital. And to help us develop that, we were supported by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. So currently the program is now in its second year and we have three critical care fellows, two from anesthesia background and one from emergency medicine. Wow, that's impressive. What have you done to develop this program? Basically, we help them build it from the ground up. So they have an interprofessional steering committee with representation from all of the disciplines that tend to refer patients to an ICU. And we help them develop educational objectives, a timeline to train people with. The program in Nepal is somewhat different from our programs in that it's a three-year program, and as part of that three years, the trainees have to do a research project and actually defend a thesis around that project. So we were quite heavily involved in first sort of helping them design it, making sure that they met objectives that were internationally recognized, helping them have the infrastructure of people who could teach there. So we did some faculty development to help them. We, you know, would teach remotely, mm-hmm. Skype, WebEx, all those forums became, you know, uh, a way for us to maintain contact. And we had extensive and still do have extensive visits to Kathmandu and to the hospitals in Kathmandu Valley. And the reason for that is, is that's really where the bulk of critical care medicine is. I'll tell you a little bit more about the infrastructure in a minute. So we have physicians and nurses there that we've come to regard as extended family members. We know that Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world. What other key features do you want us to know about Nepal, at least Nepal, before this disaster? Nepal has roughly 30 million people as a population, and most of those people live in very remote villages. 
in Kathmandu, Kathmandu Valley, there's about 5 million people. A lot of people tend to migrate to Kathmandu and to the valley as they leave the rural settings looking for a better future. There's a lot of poverty. The poverty is tremendous. There is no universal health care. There's no Medicaid there to help the people. So when they do get sick, a lot of them have to travel very long distances. They have to use public transportation. So by the time they reach a center that can help them. They're a lot sicker than before. They started that journey, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of uh, fatalities due to traffic accidents, poor construction practices in terms of work safety environments, and a lot of sepsis and septic shock. So a lot of times when people do get sick, unfortunately, as they pay, they become even more poor. And families will sell their farms, they'll sell their animals, they'll sell everything that they have in order to provide care for a loved one. And if that loved one gets critically ill, you can imagine the expenses of that. And unfortunately, if that person subsequently doesn't survive that critical illness, you now have an entire extended family that is completely destitute and that is missing the one that they love that they tried so hard to save. And so the tragedies get compounded when somebody has a life-threatening illness beyond anything that we can really imagine in the United States or Canada. Canada. There are 145 hospitals, at least there were. They were in the midst of building a couple more uh, here and there before the earthquake struck. But a lot of the hospitals since the earthquake, and in particular, there's a few that were still under construction, those have been leveled. There's only 202 ventilators in the country. Most of them are centered around Kathmandu. Most of the ICUs that they have were around the five-bed range. There is very few units that were larger than that, and about half of the hospitals didn't have ICUs. And by ICUs, we mean something slightly different than our concept here. It was a place where there was more intense nursing practices, more intense care, but 80% of those ICUs, you know, could provide sort of basic level of care. So x-rays, monitoring, that kind of thing, defibrillation. Only 10% of them had ultrasound or echo capabilities. Only about half of them have ventilators. They were in the process of trying to develop that infrastructure before this disaster struck. And so it's very different in terms of practicing before the earthquake hit. It would be a question of what can the family afford, creative thinking about how you can make diagnoses, how you can treat somebody effectively for less or costs so that you spare the family that incredible financial burden and yet still restore someone to be an active member of the Nepali society. And I must say the doctors and nurses that, you know, we have been privileged to work with, in particular, our former fellow, Dr. Subhash Akaraya, they have taught us so much more, I think, than we could ever teach them about what it means to be compassionate, what it means to be humane, and how to develop the best care with limited resources. What has your involvement been in Nepal? 
So I have worked with them at the bedside, taught at the bedside. I've taught remotely, taught long distance. I've helped the Nepal Medical Council develop what is now a draft code of ethics. We have started the conversation about developing some health law because there is no law that pertains to health care in Nepal. And a lot of times what they do is they fall back on consumer protection acts, which unfortunately treats health care as a commodity that can be bought and sold and mm-hmm. doesn't actually capture the personal impact of our health has on each and every one of our lives. And we have created with Dr. Akaraya and his cousin, uh, Mr. Nepesh Akaraya, who's the executive director of the Nepal Critical Care Development Foundation. And what that foundation's main goal is, is to promote education in ter- for physicians and, and teams looking after people with life-threatening illness, to provide the resources that people need to look after somebody with life-threatening illness, whether it be air mattresses and, you know, something that has been really helpful in terms of educational initiatives, an ICU checklist, this kind of thing to promote a culture of safety and quality of care. One of the things that has become the most relevant even before the disaster struck was the ICU care box. And that is a box of essential acute resuscitation tools like IV fluid bags, IV lines that help people initiate a resuscitation for somebody who presents with a life-threatening illness, whether it's trauma, sepsis, or any other illness, because otherwise without that, there are no supplies and the patient's families have to go and buy them. You can imagine if the family is very poor, they weren't able to do that in a speedy way, which unfortunately the illness, you know, doesn't stop. It's unrelenting when it's critical and people would then get sicker before any attempt could be made to try to stabilize them. And these boxes were designed, therefore, to help the poorest of the poor. And now since the disaster has hit, these boxes have been life-saving from what we've been told. You know, they now no one is being charged after the disaster for healthcare in Nepal. It's all been provided by the hospitals as soon as people present. But having that kit all assembled and together really speeded up the doctors there, their ability to respond. And they feel very strongly that it's really contributed to saving a number of lives that would have been lost otherwise. What have you been hearing from the doctors you know there? You know, I think my three favorite words in the English language right now is we are okay. When the news broke of the disaster, it it was, I don't think I breathed until I got that text from Subash. Mm-hmm. It was extremely difficult to watch. And since then, we've been fortunate. Text messaging tends to be the most stable, you know, sort of background or way to transmit messages. And, you know, I've tried to supply what emotional and psychological support I can under Mm -hmm. unimaginable circumstances. So they are working around the clock. I think they Mm -hmm. barely stop to rest. They barely stop long enough to even drink or eat. The number of patients has been unrelentingly, you know, they come all hours. Now that they're finally starting to get out to the villages, they're starting to see people who have severe traumas, who haven't had any access to medical care. So you can just, you know, imagine how sick they are. 
They've been working through electricity shortages. Now they're short, you know, on a good day in Nepal, there's rotating power outages, especially around Kathmandu, because the grid isn't big enough to accommodate all of the people all of the time. But now, you know, those, of course, are very much hit. Nepal Teaching Hospital has a couple of backup systems for generators, and even those generators were running out of fuel. They're working, uh, running short of every supply that you can imagine, including medications, antibiotics. They're doing surgery in the, you know, out in unbearable conditions. Mm-hmm. So already they're starting to see infections and septic shock. And the worry is, is that those are unfortunately going to get worse. People are trying to stretch their skills. Not everybody is used to dealing with acutely ill, critically ill, and trauma patients. So doctors are trying and nurses are trying to pitch in and do whatever they can. A lot of patients are refusing to go inside because of the aftershocks, so they're exposed to the elements, and storms have been rolling through every night. So these wounds and that are getting rained on. The sanitation is a struggle. It's really horrible, absolutely horrible. What can people here do if they're interested in helping the Nepal Critical Care Development Fund replenish the supplies for the hospitals and ICUs over there that are still functioning? I just want to stop just before I get to that and say that, you know, there's been so much aid coming in and the people knowing that I was going to do this podcast, uh, Dr. Akariah and everybody has asked me to thank the international community for all the help and the care that's being provided to them and to the Nepali people. It means a lot to them, and they really can't, you know, thank everyone enough from their perspective, and they wanted me to pass that on. In terms of helping them more, we had already been in the process of raising funds. Jason Wong, who is the partner of one of our anesthesia colleagues in Toronto, Dr. Giraffe, he was going to run the Marathon des Sables, so the marathon out in Morocco in the middle of the desert, and he wanted to raise money for the ICU care box. And so we were, were halfway through a campaign to raise money, and we have a website set up where the funds go directly and completely to the Nepal Critical Care Development Foundation, meaning that there's zero overhead. And these, this fund is going to be used to replenish the supplies of the hospital. So we've created now what's called the disaster care box and expanded the content set to meet more of the needs. And we're in the process of raising funds. And because the account is already set up, and I believe you guys have a link to it on the SCCM website, it's a nice way for people to donate and know that it goes directly to the foundation and that the foundation, which still has the ability to reach suppliers to purchase the equipment and the medications and the IVs that are needed, desperately needed, everything that is given is going to go there. And that will really help the doctors and the nurses who have been so courageous. I mean, some of the stories that have emerged are just, I think it just shows the spirit of Nepal. For example, there's villages who are very poor, but they haven't been as badly hit. And everybody in the village is donating one day's pay, which they can, they're so desperate, it's very hard for them to do, to the other villages and the other areas of Nepal that are harder hit. There's stories of doctors, you know, Subash himself carried with his team patients, handbagging them all the way down 14 flights of stairs after the earthquake hit to get them out of the, the very damaged hospital that he was in at the time. They carried them all out 
in an hour and a half. I mean, it's incredible stories of courage. Remember, they were still dealing with aftershocks. Mm -hmm. And I think if we are able to help them continue to help others by providing them with the funds they need to get the supplies that they need, it'll help encourage them and help them continue to go on. So our members or anyone can go to sccm.org and find the link to the Nepal Critical Care Development Fund Yes, if they wish to send a contribution. Is that correct? Absolutely. And if they have any questions, if, you know, they are also welcome to contact me via email. You know, I... It's such a, any gift that they can give is such an, an important means of, of helping people that it doesn't matter how big or how small. You know, I know some people have asked, could we set up telemedicine programs? Could we go there? I think in a little while, the answer to both of those could be yes. So there may be opportunities to sort of help those doctors and nurses get some relief by backing up, you know, the calls for advice or for help, uh, for consultation. But right now is not the time, unfortunately, because the, the communication systems are just coming back up and they're just too fractured still at the moment. But in the future, that may also be a way. And I I answer that because I get a lot of questions asking me exactly that. And in terms of going, there's so much aid that people are trying to get in right now that if we scale back, you know, not scale back, but if we sort of look at ourselves as a second wave, I think Uh at that point, our contributions, you know, uh, would be uh, much appreciated. So that may be, again, something that people want to consider in the future. This is not going to be a short-term problem. No, this is going to take decades. It's, you know, they were already struggling. They, like I said, they are some of the nicest people I have ever met as a whole in this country. And I think that's the charm of Nepal for anyone who goes there. It's just a real spirit of humanitarianism that exists of helping each other. But they were so poor. And their infrastructure was already so challenged that they're going to need help for a long time to come. And they will be, you know, very welcoming to any help that people can give them for a long time to come. Can you keep the SCCM members updated as to the needs of the Nepali people as their needs change and other ways that we might help arises? Yes, I can. And in fact, it would be a pleasure to do so. Thank you for asking me. I think you can work through the SCCM, and on the website there will likely be links to any additional information as it becomes available. Yes. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. Our hearts are out to the the people of Nepal, and I know that many, many SCCM members are looking for ways to help and contribute, and we really appreciate your giving us information on how to do that. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you again to the entire community. It is really heartwarming to see the response, and I, I can't tell you how much it'll help. It will really make a difference here. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we have been speaking with Dr. Laura Hariluk about the critical care infrastructure in Nepal and the response to the recent earthquake, the disaster, and ways in which critical care members of the SCCM and other people can contribute and help this devastated area. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. 
Bring SCCM's training courses in initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak with a product support specialist for details on our fundamental critical care support, pediatric fundamental critical care support, and fundamental disaster management courses. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.